morning. We're going to uh, look at Colossians today. And, um, you know, as I was reading and looking over Colossians this week, I was reminded of an advertisement TV commercial that I saw many years ago. I don't know how many of you are, are old enough to have seen it, but we'll find out. Anybody remember? Am I the only one? <laughs> one other? My uh, my little brother got them for Christmas one day, and, and uh, I wasn't too embarrassed as an older brother to play with them. Uh, it was it was uh, quite a challenge trying to make those things fall over, and uh, you couldn't do it. They they always recaptured their balance. Um, I was thinking about that because as we look at Colossians, uh, all of the commentaries, all of the places you might go to try to help you understand Colossians, uh, agree on what the main theme is. And, and uh, uh, they all say that, that the theme, the purpose of Colossians is to impress upon us that Christ is supreme or Christ is first. And uh, that's very evident as you read through Colossians that that's the, the main thing that it's about. And, um, and so what I want to do this morning is instead of focus on that specifically... I want to focus on what are the impacts of that truth in our lives, or what's the application. And I would put it this way. In Colossians, God says, my son gives you balance. And so now you know why I was thinking about weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. They always, you can knock them down, you can hit them hard, but they always come back to center. So this whole theme in Colossians is centered around a poem that is right at the beginning of the letter. And uh, one of the things that, that becomes evident as you study the Bible is that in the Old Testament, when there's poetry, uh, even though it's translated from Hebrew into English, you can generally understand and see where the po- which parts are poetry and which parts aren't. But in the New Testament, the Greek language doesn't translate, the poetry in the Greek language doesn't translate as easily into English. And so we often read parts of the New Testament that might be a stanza from a hymn or a little bit of poetry or a quotation from something, and we miss the fact that it's poetry. So that's why we have commentaries and websites and and study software that can help us understand this. But because the poetry doesn't translate very well into English, I've decided to give it a visual representation. And so the poem is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. And I'm going to visualize it like this. So it's a sandwich, obviously. There's three stanzas, two pieces of bread, some cheese and some meat. And the first, uh, the first stanza is like this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see. 
such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. So you can see it very clearly there where the theme comes from. Jesus Christ is king and creator of all things. And what this means, the fact that he's before and after creation and it all comes from him, is that there is absolutely nothing in this creation that can throw Jesus Christ off balance. It's just not possible. Uh, he's, he's, he holds it together. It it's all comes from him. And so, it, so he's not phased by what happens in this world. Indeed, in the whole universe. So then if we, I'm going to skip to the last stanza, because the two, first, and sec, first and last are the longer portions. And here it goes like this. He is the beginning, supreme over all, who, who raised from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So in the first stanza we have Jesus outside or, or, or beyond creation. And now we have him in creation as the first fruits of the, uh, of the resurrection. But he's a participant inside of creation here. And here again we find that he is supreme, that he is first, that it cannot topple him over. And then kind of the application is in the middle. So we have the, the, the first uh, little sentence there. He existed before anything else and holds all creation together. And so here we have his, his not only is he outside of creation because he's before and after and he created all things, but he's intimately inside creation in that he holds all things together. So from the farthest galaxies and the black holes and the things that are going on in the universe to the relationship inside the, the, the atoms and the nucleus and the neutrons flying around uh, inside the little building blocks of substances on earth, he's, he's there, he's holding it together. And so he's not only outside of creation, but he's inside. So there's, there's nothing uh, that can throw him off. And then uh, the last part is uh, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. So here's where it gets personal. Here's, here's where, where he's truly inside. But this is talking now about new creation. So the first creation, the creation of the world and everything that's in it is Christ's activity. But also the new creation that starts with the church and will bring its full fruits when Jesus returns and everything is restored. This is also in Christ. And so he's both outside and inside, and he balances everything and holds it all together, and nothing can throw him off. And so that's why we can say in Colossians, God says, my sin gives you balance. And so I want to go through the, uh, the different topics that come up, because the church in Colossae was being thrown off balance by various different things. And in each of these discourses, Paul brings Christ into the center of it. And so, uh, so he, he, each, each issue that he addresses, he, he shows how Jesus Christ brings that issue back into its proper position and brings the solution, you might say. 
Now, yesterday I shopped around town for a little punching bag to, that I, I was hoping to have one up here that I could illustrate with, but I couldn't find one. And so, uh, but but uh, you can imagine how that works. Uh, if if you try to throw that punching bag off balance by hitting it, it comes back and stands back up, and that's kind of what's happening here. So the first thing he does before this poem is he prays. He writes down some prayers. And uh, he could pray about all kinds of different things, but what he chooses to pray about is, is kind of uh, characterized by this phrase, which, which he writes in the prayer. He says, We have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the things he could say about the people, that he could pray about, that he could pay attention to, the thing that's most important to him is the fact that they have faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's what he focuses his prayer around. And so, uh, again, that's bringing balance. And then he goes on to talk about the good news, or he explains the gospel in some detail in the next few verses. And, um, and this is, again, to, to kind of take, this is just after that poem, and he's taking that information and making it more personal. And he says it this way, Jesus Christ has reconciled you to God and to one another. So that's the gospel message. It's focused on Christ and his work. And that's the good news that, that should be uh, first and foremost in our lives. He goes on then in, uh, in the next verses to talk about his own sufferings. Now, it's a personal letter. As you read Colossians, you know he's writing to friends. And they want to know how he's doing. So as you would to a friend, uh, he writes it out. How's he doing? But he's not doing well. He's uh, in prison. He's in chains. He's physically not very well. Uh, and, and so he's not actually doing that well uh, on the external. But he relates that and understands that uh, in this way. So, so the picture here is that, that he's kind of being knocked over, off balance. But he balances himself with these words. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. So he's saying, I understand the sufferings I'm in the middle of as being a participation in the sufferings that Christ was in the middle of. And so that way my sufferings have meaning. That way my sufferings don't knock me off balance because I understand them as a part of what God is doing in this world to bring about the reconciliation of all things. So he gets himself on balance in this way. After that, he talks about uh, two problems that the Colossian church was having. Uh, they were being inundated by worldly philosophies, uh, thinkings of the world that, that the church was taking on as their own thinking, and they were being inundated by rules and regulations uh, that, that the Jewish Christians were trying to bring upon them. So in the first case, he responds this way. Uh, just I'm just going to read a portion of his response. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And that's such good advice for us today. We might be dealing with different philosophies than they were, but all a philosophy really is, is it's a system of thinking that tries to make sense of a portion or, a, or all of the world. And so, for example, if you study psychology, you'll f quickly realize that there's different philosophies of how to help people get better in their emotions. And those 
philosophies contradict each other. The different methods of psychoanalysis or behavioral therapy or, or different things like that. And as you look at that, you think, well, they can't both be true, but you have to choose one philosophy to organize your thoughts and, and to, to try to understand how to help people. And so different psychologists uh, follow different philosophies. Same could be true of a political platform or of a, or a medical practice or, or of a, even within a family. Mom and dad might have different philosophies of discipline. So it gets us into trouble. It knocks us off balance. And his contention there is don't let anyone capture you with human philosophies. Doesn't mean you shouldn't think about them or contend with them or try to figure out which one you align with the closest and stuff like that. But you should be captured by Jesus Christ. Don't let them capture you. And so uh, if, if, we're, if you and I have different philosophies but we're cap- both captured by Jesus Christ, then we have so much in common that we're not in conflict. Because our priority, what comes first, Christ is supreme. He's first. He's the head. And so these other things are underneath that, and they're just not that significant. So how do you help someone? Well, yeah, you might use this or that psychology. But really, that's immaterial compared to introducing them to Jesus Christ. So that takes supremacy. That takes first place. And that's just one area. There's many areas of human philosophy that that can knock us uh, off our balance. And then he gets into the rules, and he talks about um, he talks about that in this way. He says, "So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality to come, and Christ Himself is that reality." And I think here he's so skillful with his words because he doesn't say don't follow rules. Of course we need rules. If we're going to relate to one another in community, we have to understand what behavior patterns we're going to allow and what we're not. There has to be a discussion about rules, but there probably will never be an agreement about rules. And so he says don't condemn each other. Why? Because Christ is the reality. Getting the rules exactly right isn't going to bring you to reality. It's not going to get you there because we all get it wrong sometimes. And we're going to disagree on those details. But we know that when Christ returns, the full reality of how we should live will be evident and we will live in glory and harmony together. So yeah, we need to talk about these kinds of things, but don't condemn each other. Don't judge each other because you've chosen different rules to live by. Now, he's not soft on behavior because he gets in the next section into, I I didn't know how to describe it in just a couple of words here on the screen, but I said mind and body. He discusses here about our thoughts, how we should manage our thoughts, and he discusses our behaviors, our temptations, the lusts of the flesh, and things like that. And he gets into some detail about what we should and shouldn't do, so it's not like he's throwing rules out altogether. Um, But... But here again, just let me read some of his statements because he's all about Christ in this. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule your hearts. Let the message of Christ in all its richness fill your lives. 
So over and over again, his focus returns back to that poem. It says, let Christ have supremacy and control over your thoughts. Let Christ have supremacy and control over your behaviors. And he, 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 he understands that these things throw us off balance. We get back on balance by following Christ. Then he gets into the nitty-gritty issues of household, uh, households, parents and children, husbands and wives, masters and slaves. Now we can't really relate to that last one, masters and slaves, very well. But what he's talking about here is the people that you're in daily, constant interaction with. That's your household. Some of them are Christians, some of them aren't Christians. Some of them are at work, some of them are at home. But these are the people that you're constantly around. How do you deal with that? Because there's so many places, so many opportunities to get thrown off balance in these areas. And here again, he focuses us on Christ. He uses these words. Whoever you're dealing with, parents, children, slaves, masters, he says, let it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So how do you deal with one another? As if that other person, no matter what the relationship is, as if that other person is Jesus Christ. And that will guide you. And then he ends with a prayer. And the prayer is, uh, you know, you'd think of all the things he could pray about. He prays this, that in all these things we may proclaim the mysteries of Christ. Again, he doesn't pray for their second cousin's broken foot, or he doesn't pray for, for uh, you know, all, even the things he just talked about, the conflicts in the church. He doesn't even pray about that specifically. He prays that in whatever these situations are, that the mysteries of Christ would be proclaimed in this world. He focuses it again on Christ. So I think he's telling us, God's telling us, my son gives you balance. And then he ends with a very, very practical application. It's easy to miss if you just read Colossians, but you'll see what I mean in a minute. He gives his personal greetings at the end. You know, like, uh, greet, this per- greet this person, tell them I'm doing well. This person who's over here in Rome with me wants to send gre- greetings to you and all that sort of stuff. And he writes this. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. And it's easy to miss, but that sentence, I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. That is a disruptive sentence. I don't think we can imagine how disruptive. Some of you know the story. Maybe some of you don't. But together with this letter, we name Colossians. Paul also sent the letter we name Philemon. Two letters coming together, one to the church, one to an individual. And he's giving Tychicus and Anasimus the, the task of delivering these letters. 
And here's the situation. Maybe you're one of these people. I think you probably are. Philemon. Philemon is a good man. He's a Christian leader in the church, well-respected, a good friend of Paul's. In the past, we don't know how long ago, he's been wronged, quite severely wronged. One of his slaves has stolen from him and ran off. We don't relate to that. We don't have that situation in our culture, but they did. It was just normal. Um, All of the philosophies of the world around him said, find your slave and bring proper punishment. That's what you do. That's the proper thing. That's what the law says. This slave, of course, is Onesimus. And he shows up in the church. Philemon's there. The other people are there. This is the kind of situation where we would have this kind of reaction. Um, You kind of hear that one of the people that you know, one of your friends in the church, is having a legal issue with with, uh, the business. And there's lawyers involved and there's court involved. And you're like, you know what, I'm just going to stay out of that. It's none of my business. Just let them take care of their business. That's outside of the church. Just don't, don't get involved. That's what Philemon's in, in their culture. But Paul doesn't do that. He sends Onesimus with a letter right into the middle of the church. And I can imagine as Tychicus reads 1 Colossians and then says we've got another letter and another person and then goes outside and brings Onesimus in. I was trying to think of what kind of situation would have the kind of emotional response in our life that we could relate to. And this is what I came up with. I think it's probably pretty accurate. Imagine that one of your children uh, brings home a friend of the other opposite sex. And you get to know them. You get to love them. They're starting to become part of your family. And there's an engagement and there's a marriage being planned. And then you find out that this person that you're, you're in the process of bringing into your family has actually, in bad circumstances, left a previous marriage and has never properly taken care of that stuff and has never been divorced. And the person they were previously married to is also a friend of yours. Okay, that's the situation we're dealing with here. That type of emotion. Philemon, can you imagine he's thrown off balance? Everything about his life, his culture, the world, the law, everything is telling him, punish this slave. The punishment could be up to death. What kind of business, what would, it, what would the other people he does business with think if he forgives this slave? What? Now our slaves are going to get ideas? I don't know what the ramifications were, but it was big. He was thrown off balance. Something from the past has come up. All the world, all his co-workers, his boss, everybody is telling him to do one thing. And Jesus Christ through Paul is telling him to do something else. 
And it's probably going to cost him something out there in the world. Is Christ supreme? Is Christ the head? Or do we follow the philosophies of the world? Well, I got to keep my job. I want that promotion. Everyone's telling you to do one thing. But Christ is telling you to do something else in that professional area of your life. Maybe some of you are those are in that situation. Now another person to think about here is Paul. We don't usually put Paul in a conflict here, but he is. He's in an extremely difficult situation. And maybe some of you are in this type of situation. Philemon is a good friend. He writes very tenderly to him in, 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 in the letter to Philemon, which is the next biblical book we're going to look at. But, but he's a good friend. And then in prison, he gets to know this other person. He leads him to the Lord. He becomes an absolutely essential part of his life, a support for him, bringing him food, helping him out, uh, just a, a real asset to his life, a really close friend, like a son. And then one day he finds out who Onesimus is. You belong to my other friend? And you stole from him? And now you're here with me? What, what do you do? Do you keep Onesimus close and not let him go back in case the wrong things happen over there? He gets put to death, which is the punishment for what he'd done. You protect your friend? Do you send him off to go run and hide and reject him and say, you know, go and take care of yourself. I don't want any part of this. What do you do? What a tough situation. Paul must have been thrown off balance. And maybe you're like that too. You've got two friends, two family members who are in deep conflict, have an issue. And you don't know what to do in the middle of it. And the consequences could be big. What does Christ say? What does it mean to treat these people as if they're Jesus Christ? And Paul's choice was an SMS. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but you've got to go make that right got to go back and make that right at least try he could lose a friend he could lose two friends tough tough situation but he put Christ first and then there's Tychicus he's an innocent completely innocent person he has no part of this conflict nothing to do with it And Paul says to him, take this letter and Onesimus and go and put yourself, insert yourself in the middle of that conflict. Oh, come on. It's nothing to do with me. I I could just ignore it. I I could just pretend it's not there. Why would I go and, and jump into the middle of that? And maybe you're like that. Maybe you've got some something going on on the periphery. You're not involved. It's not your issue. But Jesus is asking you, go step in there. You might be the agent of reconciliation. It's not my beef. It's not my issue. It's not my argument. 
Suddenly he finds himself in the middle of it, thrown off balance. Can you imagine walking into that church with an SMS in your back pocket? And you're going to have to read this to them. And I'm sending with you also an SMS. And the whole church goes silent. Everyone draws in their breath. And Tychicus is standing there. What do you do? Tough spot. But he put Jesus first. And he said, reconciliation and peace among the church is more important than my comfort. It takes precedence. He is supreme and he is bringing all things into reconciliation with God and all people into reconciliation with one another. And so he went and he did it. And of course there's Onesimus, a person who's got a shady past, issues in the past. But he's been transformed by Christ. He's a new person. He has a different life now, a beautiful life. And Jesus, through Paul, brings him around to the situation where he has to admit, I've got to go back and make those old things right. I don't know what it's going to cost. It could cost me my life. But I have to try. And maybe you're Onesimus. Maybe the issues aren't quite that extreme, but there's something in the past that the Holy Spirit's touching you on the shoulder. And saying, if you put me first, if you put Jesus first, you got to go deal with that. you got to at least try to make it right again. So that's what it means. I mean, it, it seems so, it's so easy to say Christ is supreme. Oh yeah, we sang the song. Jesus is first. Jesus is king. We get thrown off balance in life particularly in our relationships. And if Christ is supreme, this is what it means. So just contemplate these things as we watch this last little illustration, and then we'll sing about it together when the worship team comes up here. I, Paul, am a prisoner for the sake of Christ. I write this letter to you, Philemon, my good friend and companion in the work of the Lord. I wish you grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time your name comes up in my prayers because I keep hearing of the love and faith you have for the Master Jesus, which brims over to the other believers. Friend, You have no idea how much joy and comfort it is to me to hear about your love for others. With all of this, I have a favor to ask of you, Philemon. You know, as Christ's ambassador and now prisoner for him, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it necessary. But instead, I'd rather make a personal request. While here in jail, I fathered a child, so to speak. He is Onesimus, and he is hand-carrying this letter to you. In previous days, he was useless to you. 
Now, he is useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you. He is my very heart. But I don't want to do anything behind your back. Maybe it's all for the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back now. And no mere slave this time, but a true Christian brother. And that's what he was to me. He'll be even more than that to you. So, if you consider me a brother, a comrade in arms, I ask you to welcome him back as you would me. If he damaged anything or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will repay whatever is owed. I know I don't need to remind you that you owe me your very life. Also do my heart good to know Onesimus is welcomed and cared for. I know you well enough to know you will do what I request. It's likely you will go far beyond what I've requested. While you're preparing provision for Onesimus, please get a room ready for me. Because of your prayers, I fully expect to be your guest again. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.